This week's After Dinner speakers are largely libertarian thinker and chief economist with the New Zealand Initiative, Eric Crampton. Kia ora, Eric. Good evening. Welcome back to Notes. Thanks for having me. Now, I know you're an economist, but I think you take a fair bit of interest in politics. So what did you make of the weekend's election result? Roughly as expected. I w- uh, we'd had a bit of an election night thing at our house, and we'd had a poll going in where people were putting in their, their guesses about what the outcome was going to be, the vote share for different parties. I, I guessed around 47 for Labour. They did better than that on the night. Um, I had a little bit less for the Greens, they, um, but not by much. So I didn't win the chocolate fish that night, so that was a little disappointing. But uh, otherwise, it's broadly in line with what we were all kind of expecting on this one. As a thinker who has a fair amount of faith in the free market, then what do you make of a a Labour government having enough seats to, to govern alone. One of the things that I don't like about MMP is that it gets really hard to ascribe credit or blame to an incumbent because if you've got a multi-party government um, and you don't and outcomes have been bad, the major party in it can always blame the minor parties for having held them back. The minor parties can always claim credit for things not having been even worse. The minimum kind of thing that you want, I think, for accountability in democracies is for voters to really be able to say, no, I hate what they've done, or yes, I love what they've done. And if you've got a majority government, that makes it a lot easier. So I don't mind that we've wound up with a majority government on this. Well, because you think in three years people will have come to their senses? Well, it's not that. It's more that if you do get really good outcomes then labor should get credit for it and people should support them. And if you get really bad outcomes, it'll be pretty clear where blame lies. Speaking of credit, carbon credits, the emissions trading scheme, that's what you've come in to talk about this time. What's got you thinking about it? Well, the election campaign was really frustrating on this one. Nobody seemed to have taken proper account of changes to the emissions trading scheme that were made back in June. So for a long time, the ETS had a bit of a uh, dodgy reputation that it was a cap-and-trade scheme without really having a cap, that you'd had lots of credits that were in the system. The initial version of it, there were some dodgier credits that came in from um, former Soviet republics, that kind of thing. After that, it was this weird cap where the government was just issuing more credits. The, it wasn't really a cap at all then, not, was it? Not really. It was I more, mean, if, if you've got a cap and then you say, yeah. oh, okay, you can have some more, what it, have you got? It was a trading scheme that was intended to try and get a price on carbon and get people used to there being a price on carbon. The changes that came in after the Zero Carbon Act and the Emissions Trading Scheme Amendment Act in June made, a, made for a real cap and mean now that the consequences of all of these other bits of regulation that parties was, were talking about in the election kind of flip. So we'll go through that a little bit. So well, now, Before we yeah, do, sure. let's just remind people, because it's, it's one of those things where people, ETS, and what, what the hell does even ETS mean? What is the scheme? How does it work? So it's an, the emissions trading scheme is a way of reducing New Zealand's overall net carbon emissions, net greenhouse gas emissions. It doesn't cover everything. It, agriculture isn't in it yet, but there's going to be a price on agricultural emissions by 2025, hopefully by bringing agriculture properly into the ETS. There's some important stuff that needs to get worked out in how to do that. And when you say agriculture, that means the methane emissions from cows at the moment yeah. don't get covered. They're, they're not in there. Um, there's a separate path for methane under the Zero Carbon Act. It's not getting to net zero, but it's still having substantial reductions. 
for all of the policies that I was worried about, though, those were all things that were covered by the ETS. And it's important then to distinguish the, um, the kinds of emissions that are associated with the emissions trading scheme and ones that aren't covered. It's plausible that regulatory measures could reduce net emissions in uncovered sectors because the ETS doesn't cover them. But for sectors that are already within the ETS, things start going weird and counter to your intuitions about it if you've not really thought through how the ETS works. So right now, if you're driving your car and you go and fill up at the gas station, um, every liter of petrol that you purchase carries an ETS charge already in it. The petrol companies bought emissions credits on your behalf. So the, um, the government figures that there's 2.45 kilograms of carbon that comes out with, every, well, not carbon, but carbon dioxide and its equivalents uh, with every liter of petrol. And they've pre-bought it for you, right? Right. Because it, outside of, if we leave aside agriculture, yep. the rest of, of our, most of the rest of our economic activity, which involves burning fossil fuels, is part of that cap now. Yeah. The country has said it won't burn any more than that amount, whatever that amount is. Yeah. So we've got the in 2020. Cap. That's right. So for 2021, we've got the ETS cap. It's cl- getting close to 35 uh, million NZUs. Uh, it's a little, little less than that. And then it's on a declining track from 2023 onwards. So they start bringing down the total amount, sorry, the total amount of net emissions. So, so net matters because if you plant a tree that sucks some carbon out of the atmosphere that generates a, car, a credit that can be sold in the system. If you buy a liter of petrol that generates some emissions and you have to buy those credits out of the system and the total amount of that's put up for auction by the government falls into that mm. cap. And, and we're working on the basic assumption, economic assumption, supply and demand. The less supply, if demand doesn't change, the price is going to go up and people will either pay that higher price or they'll think, right, that's too much. I'll, I'll find some other way of getting my energy, right? Yeah, so people will change their behavior in response to the prices. And we've already seen that a bit with the increase in ETS prices. It got up to $20, $25. Now it's up to 35 People are making changes based on that. What's the problem then? Why have you come in to talk about this? It sounds like it's working. That part is all working. The problem that you get is when you layer other policies on top of it, pretending that it doesn't exist. So if we look back during the election campaign, National had a bunch of promises around... um, electric vehicles and trying to encourage greater adoption of electric vehicles. Now, there's nothing wrong with EVs. I would love to have one someday. Right now, I'm still driving a 2008 Honda that's got a fair bit of life left in it, and I'm going to drive that thing into the ground before I I change it. Same with that Uh, car, yeah. yeah. Uh, But the Teslas look awful nice. Anyways, uh, if you switch to buying an electric car, you'll be saving some money on petrol. You'll be saving some money on the ETS charges that are within petrol. But... If you fail to buy a liter of petrol, that means that there's 2.45 kilograms of emissions that are still available for somebody else to purchase, right? Because the emissions cap is the emissions cap. The government is still auctioning off the same number of units within the system. Somebody else is going to buy them. If I switch to an electric, that's a tiny, tiny change in the amount of demand for ETS credits, which means a tiny, tiny reduction in the prices of, of carbon in the ETS. Somebody else buys it instead. I don't know who it's going to be. Maybe it'll be an industrial heating plant. Maybe it'll be another vehicle that hasn't switched to electrics. It could be anywhere in the system, and it doesn't really matter where it is in the system. The cap's the cap. It's going to be reducing over time. People should have expectations right. of the prices that going up on, under the system, but it's all good. Now, say, say National got in and they'd introduced this policy. Maybe they'd, they'd really gone for it and said, right, all government vehicles would be electric. All councils 
have to buy electric vehicles. We're going to make it a lot cheaper for you to buy an electric vehicle if you want to buy a, buy a private motor car. We'll let you run your electric vehicles and bus lanes, all that kind of stuff. And and it had led to a 10% reduction in the amount of fuel we were burning, the amount of carbon we were burning up. Is it necessarily the case that that 10% would be taken up by other uses, given one of the hardest things for us to change is how we get around by vehicles? We're so reliant on petrol. Unless that reduction in demand for NZU, the traded units in the ETS, New Zealand units, NZU, uh, unless pulling that bit of demand out of the market did so much to affect overall demand compared to supply that the price went down to effectively zero, where there'd just be unsold units, it there it, it won't have any effect on net emissions. Uh, you'd have to have such a big effect you're, on you're demand that it puts that it down to zero. If you remove it from somewhere, it's a cap. It will just be taken from somewhere else. Unless you do get to that point where the amount of demand for emissions is so is is less than the cap, right? So even if it if it were the case that even at a price of zero, um, the, sorry, even if it if you got down to a price of zero and people didn't want to buy more then you will have achieved net reductions. But it would have to have come at a much higher cost than just working through the ETS. So, for example, uh, part of uh, National's policy was around $23 million a year. I think they underestimated some of the cost of it. Let's stick with the $23 million. At a carbon price of $35 a ton, which is the current price, the government could buy and retire about 660,000 carbon credits. Now, it would be a bit less than that. It would depend on the effects on the price. But you'd know that those 600-odd thousand tons of emissions, if you, if you bought those emission rights and then you burn the rights, or that might have carbon implications if you're burning them and you make a little bit of smoke from the bits of paper, maybe put them through the shredder instead so nobody can use them, you've effectively reduced the cap by that amount. Those are emissions that will not happen because you've bought the right for them and you're not letting anybody use them. Right. If you'd done that instead, that would have to wind up being more cost effective, because if in doing that, you encourage people to shift to EVs and that'd be all great. You would have achieved the same thing that the regulation would have done. But if instead people change in other places in the system because it's cheaper to mitigate carbon emissions somewhere else instead, then it's necessarily the case that the regulatory policy would have costed more than just buying and retiring those credits. Well, that brings me to to something which some people in the rural sector have been talking about recently. And, okay, granted that the rural sector at the moment sits outside, at least when it comes to some emissions, methane emissions, for example, from cattle. And, And that is that one of the cheapest ways at the moment to offset carbon to reduce net emissions is not to reduce... The, the amount of carbon you might burn through driving a vehicle, it might be to plant pines. That's the cheapest way. And you might have, you're, I'm sure you've heard yep. of the Fifty Shades of Green movement that's, that was talking a lot about pastoral land, particularly hill country land, being planted in pines now to offset our carbon emissions. Yeah, if that is the cheapest way of mitigating carbon, and if that is consequently the highest value use of the land for the farmer, so the farmer would be weighing up what are the returns to this land in sheep or other pastoral agriculture, what what do the sheep markets look like going forward, how much can I get out of converting to forestry? Yeah, people will convert to that as the ETS price increases, if that is the best best way of, of uh, arranging your affairs, right? Maybe our, our comfort... Our, our... Because, you know, changing to an electric vehicle or changing maybe the way you get around, so use electric public transport, is 
it, it, perhaps a bit of a barrier, a psychological barrier. I mean, we're not necessarily completely rational about that, are we? It doesn't really matter. The cap is the cap. And if some people decide that they just absolutely love the sound of a 12-cylinder engine and they don't care what the petrol price is, well, fine. They're, and then they drive the, the countryside and think, where are all these bloody pines coming yeah. from? These well, bloody pines. I'm sick of them. If the government really didn't want there to be that much more land conversion into pines, it could use other regulatory mechanisms to prevent land conversion, if that were its goal. It would make more sense to do that than to try and skew it by, okay, we're going to have an EV mandate because we think that that's going to sufficiently reduce the price of carbon in the market while increasing the overall cost of climate change abatement so that people don't convert quite as much land into forestry. You start getting into these weird 12-dimensional chess games where they could just be a lot more direct. We're going to rely on the ETS for mitigating carbon. And if there are some areas where the government just doesn't want people to be making those adjustments... Well, say we're no, no longer going to be allowing more forestry credits if they wanted to do that. I don't think they should be wanting to do that. But if that were the goal, that would be the better way of handling it. Because I can see the politics in people. I mean, the moment we stick, National was talking about EVs, but National was also but continuing to, to and so is Labour yep. now say, well, let's build lots more roads, lots more roads where we continue to make it easier for people to drive. And I can also imagine when National does get into back into power eventually that one of its strong pushes might be by then people saying, um, these pines around here, our sheep farms have gone, they're under pines. And I can imagine the political interference to stop that from happening. Well, again, if they wanted to have the political interference on the restricting uh, land use changes to prevent turning into pine, well, the government can do that if it wants to. It shouldn't put a thumb in the ETS to mess, to mess up how the rest of that system works. If it thinks that there are substantial negative effects for the rest of society from having land conversions into pine, it could put some tax on land conversions into pine if it wanted to or other regulatory processes around it. But that gets, you're talking about roads, that gets into another problem that we've got in failing to think through the implications of the ETS. So this is also very frustrating. So over the past three years, Labor has been trying really hard to get more housing built. So Kiwi Build failed, but the infrastructure financing reforms were important and will help. The national policy statement on urban planning requires councils to allow more housing, and that's awesome. It'll help get housing costs down. But one of the underlying problems is that councils have been looking for reasons to block growth because they face the costs of it. They don't get the benefits from it. Yeah. The changes that came in in the last few months also, started having, they're allowing councils to start considering the emissions effects of consented activities. Now, if we didn't have an ETS, then maybe that'd be fair enough. But we have an ETS, transport is covered in it. If a council is looking to block a project and is looking for a pretext for it, then saying, well, we'd love to allow this new subdivision that will help with housing affordability, but have you considered all the greenhouse gas emissions of people driving back and forth into town? Well, those emissions are already covered in the emissions trading scheme. If somebody starts doing that commuting, they are buying tons of carbon that are then not available for somebody else to emit instead. The, carbon cha the climate change effects are already incorporated. So... 
giving that to councils as an additional thing that they should be considering and consenting can't do any good because it's already considering stuff that's already in the ETS, at least when we're looking at housing and subdivisions. If we're talking about consenting a coal mine that's going to be exporting coal to China, that might be something different. But if we're talking about housing, then it's already in the ETS. And it's a new mandate on councils. It's another cost for them. And it gives them a pretext for blocking housing again. So that's another mess couple of questions, maybe three if we can squeeze in them. One is, where will the cap be 10 years from now? So the cap is going to be declining over time. So it's fixed through about 2023, and then it's declining slowly, well, kind of linearly in line with the 2050 uh, net carbon zero. Net zero by 2050. Yeah. Uh, At the moment, can we purchase offsets from outside of New Zealand? I think we've spoken about this before, and the answer then was no. No, the answer is still no. They're still working out international tradability, but it can come in through a really neat mechanism that the government came up with on this one. So this is, again, part part of the changes that came into the ETS, they've put a price ceiling in on, on carbon. So they're saying the price of carbon can't go to higher than $50 per, per unit in 2021. And then uh, the price cap for 2022 will be $50 plus 2%, and it increases at 2% per year after that. If the price ever gets up to that cap, then the government is required to sell more units into the system at that price cap. But the units have to be backed. Backing means that the government is doing something else that pulls a ton of carbon out of the atmosphere at the same time as it releases a ton of carbon into the ETS. So that change is net zero, and the government would have access potentially to buying credits on the European market or elsewhere where there's a credible way of reducing global emissions, where New Zealand would be buying that internationally and then releasing the credit within New Zealand. And first best would be getting to full international tradability. There's still a lot of negotiation that has to happen around that. They're working out the conventions on that to avoid double counting and all those kinds of issues. But the price ceiling, it's a beautiful mechanism. It avoids prices here getting well out of well ahead of prices in Europe because if prices here started exceeding the price in Europe, and right now the $50 cap is about what the European price is, so prices here have a ways to go before they start hitting that. If prices here exceeded the price in Europe, you could start imagining pretty bad outcomes, right? So production here, that might be more uh, greenhouse gas efficient, fewer emissions, shifting to places where it's just cheaper to emit. Having that price ceiling in so that prices don't exceed the prices in places that are also taking climate change seriously, like Europe, that's great. Meanwhile, the United States isn't part of that, is it? Nope. They're, uh, no, they've got a lot of issues. It's not. And, and another thing is... What if we don't meet our obligations? At some point, there's a reckoning for us, isn't there, because we're part of this scheme? Well, there's a reckoning for the world if we don't meet yes, global obligations. Yes, but for New Zealand, if it but doesn't meet its obligations, do we get punished by other nations? Are there sanctions? What happens if you don't meet your your requirements that you've signed up to at Paris? I don't think that there's any way of making those things particularly internationally punitive. Um, I'd have to check in more on what they've tried to do, but it's difficult for nations to bind themselves in those ways. But the government has bound itself within the Zero Carbon Act to getting to net zero. The price cap mechanism makes sure that you can't go horribly inefficient in doing it. It would have been really good if the Zero Carbon Act had had a bit more um, 
a, a requirement that measures taken under it that weren't through the ETS were measured against their efficiency and effectiveness. So making sure that the cost per ton of additional measures, whether they be EV subsidies or anything else, were costed against just buying the credits in the ETS and putting those credits through the shredder so nobody could use them because it's so easy to pay 10 times or 20 times over the going price through regulatory measures. Okay, in less than 40 seconds, should methane be in the emissions trading scheme now? We should get to having full convertibility between methane and other greenhouse gases and have them all under the same cap. There are some really difficult problems in how to deal with uh, traded agricultural goods, especially in markets where they're not facing a carbon price. Eric, thanks very much for coming in. Thank you. Eric Crampton from the New Zealand Initiative, back with more largely libertarian thinking. In around about 10 weeks from now, maybe just once more this year, just before Christmas. You could come in for Christmas, couldn't you, Eric? Sure, I'm around. That's good to hear. Eric Crampton from the New Zealand Initiative.